Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled and honored today to be sitting down with Mr. Raul Powell. Raul, welcome to the show. Great to see you, my friend. It's been a long time, but it's good. It's been a while. It's great to see you again. Um, And as we were just talking offline, it seems like you may have found the golden thread that connects this whole history of human action and unintended consequences, perhaps? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's all about money. It's all about people. It's about society. It's about why do we get to where we are, where we're going. It's everything. And it's something that I, it took me years to realize. I mean, I've been in this business for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I was always focusing on bits of the big story Mm-hmm. And never asking, well, why did it get there? And then when you ask that, it takes you back further in the story. And then you go, well, why did we get there? And then before you know it, this whole thing pans out and you're like, oh my God, you just don't realize the law of unintended consequences and how big they can be. Right. And most of the time, we like to blame politicians, but most of the time, we're all to blame. Right. And not for any fault of our own, but just by something that happened. So that's a little prequel to the story. <laughs> yeah. I, this is a, a great way to look at it because, you know, I, I'm drawn back to Taleb's writing. And he says, essentially, every time human beings intervene in a complex system, we're trying to do accomplish A, but we end up creating unintended consequence B, C, D, E, G. So it's every time we're trying to fix one thing, we're creating these other problems that we don't often understand the connection between until there's a lot of retrospect. So where do we start? Do we start? So we start with the peak of the British Empire, which kind of feels a bit weird. But at the end By the turn of 1900, Britain's power had begun to wane. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen. The sun never never set on the British Empire. But as with all empires, they're almost impossible to keep hold of long because it collapses on the middle because of debt and the issues of trying to run all these different people across a global system and they're not unified people. So it becomes an impossible situation. So towards the late 1800s, the British started a series of wars with the Germans. Mm -hmm. And the Germans were the rising power in Europe and were clipping at the heels of the British. You know, the British had defeated the French and the Spanish and were, you know, the global dominant power and the Dutch and were the global dominant power. But the Germany was rising and Britain was struggling to be able to meet this new rise of Germany. Then what happens is one of the greatest unintended consequences of all time was the shooting of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And suddenly a world that was still relatively gentlemanly, where we had gentlemen's warfare, turned into the biggest bloodbath in all recorded history, which was World War I. World War I was when Britain and Germany finally fought it out with the French in the middle. 
It was also the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire was one of the biggest empires the world had ever seen, and that had been in place for multiple hundreds of years, if not a thousand years, in various guises. World War I saw the end of the Ottoman Empire and a complete power vacuum of which Germany was filling, and 20 million people died. The world had never seen warfare of that sort because of the rise of technology. Tanks, planes, stuff like this. And it kind of shocked everybody. Europe was used to kind of gentlemanly warfare where we'd fight on the battlefields and then have you know drinks on the polo field, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But that world had gone. The kind of innocence of that world had disappeared forever. Mm-hmm. So what happens after World War I was where it really all began. It began in something called the Treaty of Versailles. In France, all the nations, the UK, the US, who was the rising superpower, Germany and France got around a table and negotiated the peace terms for World War I. In that was a war repatriation payment for Germany. And the British and the French, against the Americans' advice, was to impose a historically gigantic um, offset for the damage done to Europe. Mm. Because they were still trying to think in those terms of being a gentleman, you should be fined for what you did. Mm. I mean, Christ, 20 million people died. So they reached this agreement, and in modern-day money, it's kind of half a trillion dollars. But economies were smaller. You know, this was an unpayable amount of money. Mm-hmm. So Germany in the 20s starts trying to pay this and simply can't. Mm-hmm. So they decide to debase their currency. And that is the German hyperinflation. You know, people confuse debasement with inflation all the time, but they're not the same thing. It was a debasement of currency to pay this debt. So they couldn't pay the debt, so they debased their currency, and Germany collapses. And out of the collapse of Germany rises Hitler. Right. So the debt was denominated in the mark? Is that right? I think it was denominated in marks. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, but and so, that was that's how they decided to try and pay it off. Right. Which is right, the age right. old government thing, right? Is of course yeah. you can't pay your debts, you debase your currency until yes. you can. Of course, yes, uh, yes, yes. So just to, okay. So British Empire was dominant in the world. Uh a lot of this had to do with I mean, they were just an imperialist force, right? They had created a huge navy he who controls the waves controls the world uh but then germany's rising as an industrial power correct uh that's threatening uh the dominance of of uh the british empire and to your point industrialization played such a role in this right we, it was the first industrialized warfare i guess you would say correct and this was this was a battle of technology Mm-hmm. Much like cyber warfare is now, right? That was a battle of technology, and the Germans had technology, and the British had technology, and and they all fought it out. Yes, and that's why so many people died because we weren't prepared for anything like that. Right. And the technology of money played a critical role as well. In that fiat currency was 
used to fund warfare and also led to uh, Germany's approach to repaying their debt yeah. to debase their currency. And if we're talking about money over that period, the British, I think, were the first to leave the gold standard over that period. The French left, the Americans left, pretty much every country in the world. I think it was yep. like 80 odd countries. So many people defaulted because yep. of the cost of war, right? And that's yes. a, another typical thing right. that destroys currency is the cost of warfare. It's, it's right. the most expensive thing governments ever spend on. Yep. It's one of the features of today and why we've got so much debt is the cost of wars that we fought that we could never pay the bills for. Right. So, you know, all of the precedents are all there. So then what happens is World War II. Mm-hmm. And this is where the story really starts. So the collapse of the British Empire leads to World War I, which leads to the rise of Hitler, which re- leads to World War II. 70 million people die. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's unprecedented. It's three and a half times the size of the number of people who died in World War I. Mm. And again, that was the shock that brought the next thing, which is the unexpected thing. Those things were kind of expected because, you know, geopolitics, they, they, they trend in certain ways. Yes, there was unintended consequences of the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand for World War I, but the collapse of the British Empire leads to vacuums of power, mm-hmm. much like when the US pulls out of the Middle East, it leaves a vacuum of power in the Middle East. Right. And before you know it, you create warfare and eventually everything settles down once people figure out their new role in, in, that, in, that new, in, in the region. Mm-hmm. So World War II finishes, and here's the bit where humans made a mistake. What do they do? They're euphoric. And they go and have sex. And they create (laughs) the largest population boom the world has ever seen. And what happens in America is 78 million people were born in a 20-year period. The population grew by 40% in 20 years, and the global population grew by 30%. Wow. In 20 years. Can you imagine if the US opened its borders and the population was allowed to increase by 40% from immigration? What would that do, right? Okay. And everybody thought they were doing it rational because what had happened after World War II was the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And the New Deal was this fiscal stimulus, and this will become relevant when we get much later in the story, Mm. was this fiscal stimulus where they basically, again, imposed financial repression by capping the yield yields, yield curve mm-hmm. control, mm-hmm. allowed inflation to run relatively hot. It wasn't super hot, but it was hotter than bond yields, mm-hmm. to lower the burden of debt. But then they fiscally stimulated in an unprecedented manner never seen before in world history. Mm-hmm. That stimulus and, and the Marshall Plan of rebuilding Germany and rebuilding Japan mm-hmm. That stimulus created the boom of the 1950s. And the 1950s and 1960s were probably the last golden age we ever saw, Mm. um, where real wages were rising. People's standard of living was going through the roof as the technology that got developed during warfare turned into consumer goods like washing machines and cars. Right. And everybody had access to it. Labor was still relatively inexpensive. So that's what part of where there was the politics of nostalgia. So 
typically on the left, oh, on the right of the political spectrum, um, whether it's the UK or whether it's the US, they look back at the 1950s as the golden era. Mm-hmm. The golden era where life was simpler. Now, it was very different. Longevity of life was very different and all of those things. But there was this boom period because of the end of World War II, the rebuilding of global economies, things that can almost never be replayed, but may get replayed in the future mm-hmm. because of things that are going on now. So that goes on. And this, the world also retools its entire global infrastructure and becomes mm-hmm. globalized. So as opposed to being empire-based, it becomes this rules-based global order system. Right. So 1944 was Bretton Woods, which is the tying of all the currencies together to the gold standard pegged to the US dollar. Mm-hmm. 1946 was the United Nations. 1947 was the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades. Uh, 1949 was NATO. 1957 was the EU. So these are the super infrastructure of the world that we've all grown up in. Mm-hmm. This is the the centralized power of globalization. And that was put in place to avoid what had happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So go on. So well, so we had the post-war tech and demographic boom. So a lot more people. And then to your point, a lot of the technology developed in wartime is now being converted for peacetime utility. So we had and this- all the manufacturing as well. Right. All the manufacturing that's put in place. So there's this huge technology-led economic growth boom, effectively. With fiscal uh, stimulus in massive size. Right. Right. Um, and then you have, so I guess Bretton Woods and these other agreements and arrangements you've described, does that all fall under kind of Pax Americana? Is that... It is kind of Pax Americana because yeah. America was instrumental in setting all of this rules-based global order system up. Right. You know, with the British and the other larger powers to say, look, we need a system in place that we can't go back to World War II, yes. that we need a rules system of which global order can be kept. Right. So so the uh, at least ostensible purpose of this was to increase economic interdependence among the nations so that we didn't have World War III. Correct. And this is also the transition from the dominance of the English Empire or the British Empire to the rise of America as the dominant superpower. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and um, you know, America was the epicenter of that golden age. Mm-hmm. And all of these, this rules-based global order architecture was built around America and its globalized ambitions. So now you've got, you've gone from an empire organizing the complex adaptive society of, of you know, the British organizing the complex adaptive society of empire to the Americans organizing the global complex adaptive society using this rules-based global order system. Mm -hmm. And because it's pretty non-threatening, yes, America had military might and exercised it in, firstly in in the Suez, then in Korea, then in Vietnam, and, you know, Mm -hmm. ongoing as America's done, because it is the superpower and that's kind of its job, um, rightly or wrongly, or deemed Mm -hmm. to be its job. Um, that, 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 that's what sets it up. So the U S is now the epicenter of the system and controls the rules and that's fine. That works Mm -hmm. pretty well. So meanwhile, let's go back to these baby boomers. 
1967, the first of them start entering the workforce. So they just, you know, hit their 20s and they start entering the workforce. Mm -hmm. Great. For the first of those guys, amazing. Mm -hmm. Then by 1975, the average baby boomer is now in the workforce. Mm -hmm. So you've got the highest increase in people in the workforce ever. And two things happen. Firstly, prices explode. Because if you think when you first got your first job, what do you do? You rent an apartment or, you know, right. you, you, you have to buy, in the old days, a suit and tie. You have to buy tables and chairs. You, have to, you buy yourself a car. Your marginal rate of consumption explodes. Yeah. When you're doing that on a global basis, it explodes beyond anybody's comprehension. Right. It's the largest demand shock the world had ever seen and will ever see. We will never repeat anything like that again. So obviously supply can't catch up with demand. So the oil price goes through the roof. All commodities go through the roofs. Everything goes through the roof. Right. And so everybody's scrambling to catch up. America can't deal with running twin deficits and being pegged to gold. It's losing its gold supplies. Yeah, its currency is too strong, and in 1971, Nixon walks away from the whole thing. Yeah, and we go to the fiat money system because it's unmanageable with this population boom going on and the rising inflation and all of the other pressures that are going on. By 19, by 1986, the baby boomers enter the workforce. Uh, sorry, the last baby boomer enters the workforce. Mm -hmm. So you've got this period, which we refer to as the great inflation, which most people think of as being a monetary phenomena, I think is a demographic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I can prove it in every chart that I look at proves that it was demographics. Right. The monetary side, of course, played a role. But the reality was, if you were to put the same setup anywhere in the world, regardless of what you're pegged against, you've got the same demand shock. Right. And the world can't keep up. Right now, as we're talking, we've got a supply shock. So, you know, the demand has, has, has risen to normal levels, but supply is massively contracted. So prices rise. Mm -hmm. That tends to be, it tends to be offset quite quickly because as things come on, the general level of prices stabilizes again. Mm -hmm. Sure, the price doesn't fall. It never goes back, mm -hmm. um, you know, but it, but it kind of stabilizes. So the other part of that equation is not the inflation. <clears throat> the really big story is the one that nobody understands, is that wages stopped going up. Mm -hmm. So in real terms, obviously, if you add a record number of people, like if you added record immigrants into the US right now, what happens? Wages don't go up. Right. And in fact, they never went up again. Mm -hmm. In real mm -hmm. terms, since 1975, wages haven't gone up. They've gone up 0.3% a year right. for the median American. And this is the infamous decoupling from productivity growth, right? Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Because GDP grew yeah. because of financialization. I'll come on to that in yeah. a minute. Um, but this is where the real crux of the issue starts. So... You pull these people in the workforce and like you compete with each other. 
So they start competing for wages. So guess what? Nobody needs to pay higher wages. Right. And so these people have been promised the American dream. That was the dream of the 50s. Yeah. They saw their parents have that. And the baby boomers never got any of it. (laughs) They got something entirely different. They got, suddenly, they got this weird world where fiat currency was being gradually debased, not like we have these days, Mm -hmm. but gradually debased by inflation, you know, money supply issues, stuff like that. And asset prices start to rise. And their wages don't. Mm -hmm. And this is the key thing is if your assets rise and your wages don't, your future self is poorer Mm -hmm. because an asset is a way of storing wealth for future consumption. Mm. But within this is an uglier picture as well, is the fact that that if you split the population down between with kind of percentiles, the lower percentiles saw zero increase in wages, complete mm-hmm. zero. Mm-hmm. So you know the worker working in a you know flipping burgers, you know production a factory worker, zero increase. Right. The average, the median, as we said, okay, the median worker saw about a 33% increase in real wages in 50 years, which is incredible compared to what happened to GDP and productivity. This is from 70 to 2020, you're saying? 70, yes, yeah, 70, 73, 74, something like that. Okay, today. Yeah, and then the average guy, because it takes into account the really wealthy skew, Mm -hmm. Well, their wages have gone up 100% over those 50 years. So you're already seeing that bifurcation in people. So then if you think of that, and we'll come on to a lot more about this in a bit, but if you think of politics now, right, you think of the left and the right and the extremes of left and right, mm-hmm. I'm talking about not the, you know, the middle ground, but the extremes of left and right are both really fucking angry. Mm-hmm because they've been left behind. Right. And nobody knows why, so they they blame it on politics. (laughs) But the reality is it's people having too many kids. Right. So they are really angry because both those parties have this base of the poor, but in different parts of the country. And those guys' lives never improved. They were promised a dream that never happened. They live in the world's richest nation and they never got any of it. Right. And then all they're bombarded with is the imagery of the beautiful rich getting richer and how great America is. And they're like, well, what happened to us? Uh, Of course you're going to cause populism. Makes a ton of sense. So you're making the case here that at least to some extent, the political polarization we are witnessing today is a reflection of this widening wealth disparity, this economic divergence. Without and the, question. And that divergence itself, as you're saying, is driven largely by demographics. But there's also a significant monetary component here, which I'm sure you're going to go into. 
But this, I think this is a, a, an important thing for people to understand is that politics is downstream of economics. All, almost always. So it's not like you can go solve problems in Washington and fix this polarization. This polarization is symptomatic of a deeper economic divergence. Yeah. And we'll get, we'll get into that towards the end when we're trying to figure out between the two of us, how can we solve some of this? Because mm. it it's going to require not doing things that we've done in the past, thing that feel crazy or wrong to us are going to have to be tried and tested because we cannot simply keep flipping from, well, we're going to support people in certain ways on the left, or we're going to hope we can get rich people to trickle down their wealth to poor people. I mean, we've done the same fucking thing now right. for 40 years, and it yeah. doesn't work. Right. right? These people's wages have never gone up. Their standard of living has not gone up. Yes, it's gone up because they're longevity. No, the, the median American's longevity of life has barely risen as well because mm -hmm. of you know, diet and all of the issues that has come. But the where it gets really ugly is, and this is where the money part comes in and a whole bunch of other stuff, globalization, is Reagan and Thatcher come along. And it was really Thatcher who drove a lot of this. She figured out something really clever. And it seemed a good idea, but it had unintended consequences, as everything does. Thatcher's idea was, in England, we had what's known as council houses, free housing for um, low-income families. They were, you know, one of the benefits, like the National Health Service that came out of World War II, where we're like, we need to help people, you know, part of that big fiscal stimulus that came in the restructuring of the, of the political landscape. So people were living in these houses for free, and, and Margaret Thatcher decides okay, what makes a conservative voter in the UK? A conservative voter is generally a house owner because they are more tied to the economy. Right. So, and Labour voters, the left side of the spectrum in the UK, tend to be, tend to prefer state support. Okay, fine. The same left-right divide we're talking about. So Margaret Thatcher does a piece of genius, political genius, and I'd have said economic genius, initially, which was, we're going to sell them these houses at ridiculously underpriced rates. And we're going to free these people. And that was a great idea. And the Conservatives won a lot of votes, obviously, because you're giving away assets for nothing. Mm -hmm. And people who couldn't afford housing now can afford housing and etc. It wasn't great quality housing, but it was, it was an asset. But the issue is, is you turned all of these people into debtors. Mm -hmm. And they were creditors before because they didn't have access to debts because they had no assets. Mm -hmm. And now you've turned all of the poor people into debtors hmm. and they've now become slaves. Mm. Reagan sees the same thing and realizes that credit is his solution. So there's a massive deregulation goes on in the credit markets. And the rise of Wall Street happens. So the world starts financializing at an unprecedented rate. Both Reagan and Thatcher start, and then others afterwards, start freeing up the pension system as well. 
and start driving things like 401ks. Mm-hmm. So now people can invest in their in the markets, but that has another counterbalance, which is stock prices go up and people can afford less of them with their hourly wages. Right. Property starts going up because people can now get access to debt and nobody can afford anything. So everyone's on the hamster wheel now, running and running and running, and nobody can catch up. And their wages aren't going up. So what do they do? Well, humans generally are pretty rational, or they make rational choices that appear rational and then become irrational in due course. Humans are pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. So they start thinking, well, if I borrow money, I can make up the difference. My wages aren't going up, but the asset goes up, so I'll borrow a bit more. Yeah. And so I think I've got the numbers here. So if you look at the asset prices over this period, if you look at it per hour worked mm-hmm. in terms of income, gold is now all-time highs. Equities, all-time highs. Well, your purchasing power is at all-time lows, basically, mm-hmm. versus every asset except these variable assets like oil, where you can produce more of it. So what happens is this process is slow at first, but it starts accelerating as more people buy equities because of the pension system. It becomes harder to then make sizable investments. Mm-hmm. These start going up. They make it easier, create index funds. It creates more of a loop. Meanwhile, everyone's like, fuck, I need to put money in my 401k. I can't afford healthcare. And healthcare starts exploding. Why? 78 million Americans are in right. the healthcare market at the same time. Yeah. Duh, obviously. So then that goes, that whole thing explodes. So they just borrow more money to fill the gap. And what I did is I took basically household, um, um, I took household income, real household income, an added debt component, and it basically then starts to mirror what happened to prices in assets. Hmm. So they were doing what they thought was the right thing is, to maintain my standard of living, I need to borrow money. Mm-hmm. And that creates this financialization bonanza in the 80s. Right. That leads to the 87 crash. Because everybody is now piling in to everything by borrowing money to be able to do this to be able to participate because they've got the American dream. He's like, I want to be rich. I should be rich. Yeah. But they're not being rich because they're in debt. People confuse right. this. Right. So, so in pursuit, I mean, basically the American dream was just a horizon that was receding faster than they could catch it. And so, and this is the root of fiat currency, right? Is that it incentivizes and, incentivizes indebtedness. Clearly you want to borrow a money that's depreciating and put it in something that's appreciating and make up the difference. Very clear. What I had not seen before that I think is interesting is that you've tied in the electoral incentives related to politicians to this as well. And that they now are creating policies to get people into homes, to get them to vote conservative. I think you said, Um, is all of this I mean, 
I assume a lot of this is unintended consequence, but it seems like government would not mind citizens being more in debt either, because then this would justify further future currency debasements or other policy interventions. I don't think they think in terms of currency debasement. They're not like the Roman emperor sitting Mm -hmm. there thinking. It happens in a way that kind of they delude themselves. Self-deception. Because nobody... Yeah, they don't want to admit to what they're doing. And my guess, if you went to, well, we've seen it with central bankers. Like when Mervyn King was at the Bank of England, he'd never accept any of this. Mm -hmm. And then when he left, you know, he was on Real Vision talking about, you know, I'm worried about what they do to money. Alan Greenspan was the same. They kind of see it. Right. But, you know, within all of that, then, so we're into the 80s now. Right. And we're now in the credit boom has started mm-hmm. and the cult of stock market has started and the cult of property started. These things were not cults before, mm-hmm. but with debt and this potential future, I could be the billionaire, that ridiculous mentality that drives humans and creates more desire for debt mm-hmm. ends in, ends in the, the liberalization of Wall Street, the great free market. What we should do is open everything up to the free market. What that actually meant is you're putting the power in the hands of Wall Street. And Wall Street became the epicenter of the US and global economy. Mm -hmm. And the city in the UK and all the financial centers and manufacturing didn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. It was irrelevant. So then the mid-90s, no. 1990, the next big shock, the Berlin Wall falls Mm -hmm. and the fall of communism starts. China starts opening up, realizing it has to change. The world can take Russia coming onto the market. Yes, we had a lot of immigration issues in Europe because it was a huge movement of people. And, you know, it was a kind of golden age to be in the commodity markets because those guys got really, really rich because they gave the commodities away, like the council houses, for free to a bunch of people who became billionaires until Putin didn't like them, put them in the gulags and replaced them with other people who got really, really rich because Russia owns more of the world's natural resources than all the other world, all the other countries combined, I think, roughly. It's wow. staggering how rich Russia is in natural resources. Um, so by about... 1996, they want to change the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which if you remember was one of those rules-based global order things. They want to change it to something called the WTO, the World Trade Organization. This was, again, a great idea. Let's globalize. Let's liberalize markets. Let's let us all trade with each other with no tariffs. Obviously, no tariffs doesn't actually exist because everybody still imposes tariffs on each other. Mm-hmm. But they start this idea. And now, once you make that agreement, the worker in America, who's already in excess supply, is now competing against the global worker, who's cheaper, because America is the richest society in the world. Yeah. So you've now double-fucked everybody. And they're triple-fucked because in the 80s comes the rise of the silicon chip and the computer. And Moore's law explodes, and technology starts replacing jobs at every level. 
So these poor baby boomers who are now up to here in debt by the mid 90s mm. are now facing a globalized workforce of cheaper, more effective, more productive labor. The rise of technology and a debt burden all at the same time, and too many of them. Okay, that is a really bad signal. And there's a fantastic interview. There was a famous, famous English, French, American billionaire called James Goldsmith. He was like this gunslinging, you know, MA corporate raider, typical 80s kind of figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the world's most famous investors. Now, he's a free market capitalist. And he comes on Charlie Rose in, I think, about 96 and said, we should not sign these free trade agreements. Hmm. And all of the free market capitalists are in uproar. What do you mean? Why? This is ridiculous. This, we're going to pull all the emerging markets out of poverty, blah, 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 blah. This is going to be a great period of growth, which it was for many. He said, you have no understanding what you're about to do to your own populace. Hmm. He said, you're creating an ability and all the incentives to offshore your entire manufacturing industry. And what's going to happen is the rich are going to get super rich because they're going to have the lowest cost of wages in the world to manufacture goods that they sell to your population in the US and Europe. And your wages are never going up again. And this is going to lead to populism and it's going to lead to massive societal disrupt and you've broken the social contract. Do not do this. And they're like, but you're a free market capitalist. He says, this is not free markets. Mm-hmm. This is labor arbitrage and right. you're creating perverse incentives. What you actually should do was say, if you're an American company, you can manufacture in China and sell to China. If you're a Chinese company, you can manufacture in America and sell to America free. Hmm. But you cannot manufacture in Vietnam, China, India, and sell it to the US. Yes, the consumers will get lower prices in most of those goods, and that has proven to be true. In fact, everything he said has proven to be true. It's a stunning interview. The guy's ultra intense. It's it's like it's amazing prophecy. Hmm. And it stopped me in my tracks. I kind of completely was against the narrative of, what people thought. And I was a big free trade guy and stopped mm-hmm. me in my tracks. Thought, yeah, we've really fucked this up because he was, <laughs> everything he said was going to happen, happened. Every, yeah. I mean, everything. Um, so that destroyed all of the middle of all of these countries. That, interesting. So <laughs> people, I mean, I guess we, one thing that comes to mind here is that we kind of get locked into a recency bias to some extent where stocks are going up, real estate's going up. People are just going to keep taking on more leverage so long as, you know, things keep progressing. But then too, that there's this unintended consequence, I suppose, where all of our industrial economy in the U S at least gets eviscerated and pushed offshore by virtue of, of uh, really being the global reserve currency, right? This is one of those, negative aspects of the, you know, quote unquote, exorbitant privilege. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. 
And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. I think we just left off with, there's this dark side to the exorbitant privilege, which is, and perhaps this is related to Triffin's uh, they often call it dilemma, but it's actually a trilemma. <laughs> um, you can't have it all, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too. And one of the consequences of being the global reserve currency is that your industrial economy gets priced out in other marketplaces. So it, is that related to, uh, I forgot the gentleman's name, but uh, the prediction you made? Goldsmith. Goldsmith. James Goldsmith. Um. No, because he saw this as a global issue for the developed world, which is what it was. Mm. Um, so all of these countries that had strong reserve currencies, doesn't have to be the global reserve currency, were all going to be killed. The global reserve currency with the biggest power obviously gets killed the most. Mm. Gotcha. And the US didn't have a social security network um, safety net for anything. Well, Europe did. So Europe managed to stop the worst of this because it had some sort of safety net. Now, Americans are not fans of this, but I'm a European and grew up with it. I grew up with free health care and certain types of state support, and they're just different systems, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But what happened is the workers in Germany and Italy did okay until the EU. Mm-hmm. Then they repeated the same mistake all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then China became so dominant. So let's go back into the money system now. So, so what happens now is that wages are never going up again. So everybody keeps saying inflation's coming. Inflation is in the old terms of inflation of mm-hmm. demand-driven CPI, never ever coming back in our lifetimes. Right. And in fact, it's provable because you take the births deaths ratio and put it against CPI, it leads by 30 years. Exactly mm-hmm. as I said, you hit your peak spending in, in your 30s, that's inflationary power, and it exactly follows it. And I'll share this chart and you'll be able to see it. But also what happens in 1987, Alan Greenspan did something that we haven't done before, which was as a stock market crashed, he hit the panic button and cut interest rates to stabilize the panic. The unintended consequence of that is it suddenly became a tool in the central banker's box. Hmm. Is, huh, there was no recession in 1987. Maybe interest rates can stop the business cycle Hmm. because that's really what we want to do. If we can stop the business cycle, 
then we can probably reach our employment mandate. And if we're lucky, we can reach our inflation mandate because demographics mean it's actually pretty hard to, to generate inflation in that way. Currency debasement, different type of inflation, not measured, right, as we all know. I'd just like to point out here, revisiting this point of self-deception, where you have the central bank thinking they've identified a policy pool, policy tool to put an end to the business cycle that they themselves are creating. And that's going to come back again yeah. in later on in our discussion. Yeah. So then the next big event is like the 90s. We have, you know, a few crises here and there. We have a bond crisis, blah, blah, blah. But that's all okay until 1998. And 1998, we've now started building up gigantic leverage. Mm. But the leverage is in emerging markets. It's in the US, it's in the UK, it's in Europe, it's in Japan. But the emerging markets are taking on too much versus their income. Mm. So they start blowing up, first with Thailand, and then it keeps going around nation after nation. Stock markets in dollar terms start falling 90%, completely holding out the whole Asian tigers. You know, the feature of the 80s and 90s was Taiwan, South Korea, Indonesia, all of these things, Malaysia, Hong Kong. They got decimated mm -hmm. by too much leverage lent in dollars mm -hmm. to nations that don't earn dollars. Right. This is right, which uh, is the exorbitant privilege of being the US right. as you own the currency. I was just typing up the question to ask you what was the IMF and World Bank's role in these emerging market debt blowups? Well, first they encouraged the capital flows mm -hmm. and then they had to bail them all out. Mm. But in the ugly, disgusting world of geopolitics, that obviously plays into the advantage of the US. Right. Because you've now got them by the throat. Right. Slaves, once again. Yeah. And so what happens is those growth economies don't become the growth economies. Yes, they all do fine over time, but the South Korean stock market took 20 years before it hit a new time high. Taiwan took 20 years. I mean, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. But in that, something close to home happens. We're starting to speculate in assets wildly, and the growth of the hedge fund industries happen. Households are picking up leveraged steam for the reasons we talked about, because mm -hmm. asset prices keep going up, so they have to keep raising their leverage. And house prices, uh, you know, um, so household income as a percentage of household debt keeps falling. So it's now 0.4% right. of the debt. Wow. Yeah, so it shows you how leveraged they are. Mm. You know, it's 20 something, 25 times levered is a wow. US household now. Now, asset, yeah, they've got assets, but to, in terms of income, right? Like mm -hmm. Income coverage. So we've now financialized Wall Street because let's go back. We've got this record number of people who've now been encouraged to start investing in the stock market via their 401k. This is deemed to be a good thing because when they retire, they've got money. What Wall Street does is take all of that and then they leverage it. So they leverage it for their own benefits because that's where they get um, that's where they get all their benefits from. 
So banks are making record margin. Goldman Sachs goes public. I was working for Goldman Sachs at the time. You know, we've got the highest ROI of any bank in the world. You know, people are printing money. And the financial system is the center of the world. And then long-term capital management blows up. And I was at the absolute epicenter of that too. And I saw it firsthand. And I was involved in both them putting on their trades and then helping all the banks take off their trades um, <laughs> to unwind that. But Greenspan cuts rates twice. In the Asian crisis, because of this, suddenly there's not enough dollars in the world, right? The, dollar, mm. the world is now suddenly record short dollars. And they're like, shit, the dollar's exploding higher and uh, nobody can pay their debts. And therefore, there's less money at home. I mean, you know, th this is a big problem. George Soros actually writes a book about it called The Crisis of Global Capitalism that says this is going to spread to the core, meaning the developed countries. Mm -hmm. And everyone kind of poo-pooed it and said, no, it's an Asian thing. So Greenspan cuts rates twice. The world stabilizes. The banking system saved. You know, many of these European banks almost went under then. It was a mm -hmm. big deal. And then the central banks have basically said, we've got your back. <laughs> so now everyone goes, you did it to us in 87, and now you've done it for us now. <laughs> Let's all go in. The safety and we start net was established. And the largest stock market bubble in all recorded history begins. Hmm. And nobody wants to invest in these emerging markets. So all the money gets sucked into the United States, basically. Hmm. And that boom happens. So the boom in the United States stock market was unprecedented. So we then hit the bust of that. And many of us at the center of the financial system were thinking, is this going to be the end? Mm -hmm. Is this the one that blows up the debt bubble? And lo and behold, interest rates get cut, 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 cut. Mm -hmm. And it stabilizes. And the system is saved. So it was an equity problem and not a debt problem. And so you've saved one side of the balance sheet, so the world recovers pretty quickly. But what happens then is these baby boomers lose faith in the stock market for a while, mm -hmm. for a decade. So they think, how the hell are we going to retire? And so it starts again. And it's the property market. And the only way to buy it is with leverage. Right. But in the meantime, something ugly is going on, and it's the labor force participation rate. Mm. So that peaks a couple of years after all of the baby boomers are in the labor force. Also, adding to the baby boomers in the labor force, the double shock of the demographics was women came into the labor force too mm -hmm. in record numbers. Right. Why? Because the household they had to, because the cost of the cost of all this stuff had gone up. So yeah. you had to put women in the workforce and pay nannies to look after your kids. You know, it was yeah. a complete change. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't the right thing to do. Of course it was, but people were forced to, whether they wanted to or not. Right. So you had to have these double income households. Yeah. Because of the indebtedness, right? Exactly, because the yeah. indebtedness and the rising asset prices. So yeah. your future self is getting poorer. Yeah. So you're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I need to catch up. I need to catch up. We both need to get a job. We need to work two jobs. Mm -hmm. 
labor force participation rate eventually starts falling after 2000 as people start kind of just falling by the wayside mm-hmm. as their jobs are gutted. Right. So this is the globalization and technology problem we talked about earlier is in the end, people just can't get jobs. Mm-hmm. So you get this labor force participation rate falling and then it starts happening as the boomers start retiring, which is they start, they hit their fifties in 2000. So the ones who are lucky enough to remember the ones at the beginning of this full cycle mm-hmm. were the ones that were lucky. Those are the ones who get to retire. Those are the ones who manage to do that. Labor force participation rate falls. Why do I keep talking about the labor force participation rate? Because it exactly maps velocity of money. Hmm. So velocity of money collapses because of demographics. Because the older the population gets, the less the money circulates. Right. Yeah. You see your parents, how do they spend compared to you? It's very different. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you retire, you spend even less. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw my dad go through retirement. Problem is, is you get a fixed pool of money and an undefined age that you're going to mm-hmm. live to. Right. So the natural human behavior is to be cautious. Mm-hmm. So you collapse your spending because the last thing you ever want to do is be 85 years old and destitute. Right? It's just normal human behavior. So aging populations always have lower growth. Fact. Yeah. And that is provable by the labor force participation rate or the births deaths rate. It's mm. exactly ma- mirrors it as you'd imagine. So CPI, velocity of money, GDP growth are all a function of demographics. But the other shocker is what happens next? So the next part of the story, and it's all interrelated, and it all comes back from that World War I and the collapse of empire, it mm-hmm. all comes, is we've now hyper-financialized, and the weakest balance sheets in the world are the households. Mm-hmm. And behind that is the banks. So you start wiping out the household balance sheet by property prices falling, mm. and you have the biggest financial collapse in all history, pretty much, maybe since the 1930s. So that's the debt burden. So the central bankers know the trick now, right? We've learned this from 87 and 97 is cut, 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 cut. Rates go to zero. Oh, we need to do something else. We'll print money and call it quantitative easing. Because printing money sounds bad, right? Because everyone kind of knows if there's too much of something, it becomes valueless. So we'll call it quantitative easing. And we'll kind of express it like amount of quantitative easing kind of equates to the number of percentage points, rate cuts you could have. And we can pretend they're fungible things. (laughs) The sleight of hand, the magic sleight of hand. Why they do that is because in a debt crisis, you can't have the collateral go to zero. Right. That's why half of the banking system was going bust because they were using mortgages as collateral. Right. So you need to stop that happening. So you have to bid the collateral. (laughs) You have to bid the collateral. And what their idea was, and I don't believe they thought they were debasing the currency. They kind of thought it's not going to debase the currency. And nobody really noticed because they were looking at the wrong thing. 
because everyone's looking at CPI. It's going to be inflation. Right. Right. Never happened. Yeah. No, because it went in asset prices because the denominator was falling in value right. every time they did it. You know, most assets have not got back to their prices versus the Fed balance sheet or M2, however you want to mm-hmm. measure it, because the denominator has fallen so much. Mm-hmm. They never get back there. Right. Some of them have, and we'll talk a bit about that in a bit. But So monetary printing becomes a new thing. So going back to the labor force participation rate, when you overlay labor force participation rate, you can actually forecast into the future because it's based on demographics. And I've been doing this for seven or eight years now, mm-hmm. and it exactly shows you where the Fed balance sheet's going. Amazing. So four years ago, I was saying, well, it's going to go to, uh, to uh, $8 trillion in 2021. That's where we are. Just yeah. follows it. Because what the Fed are doing are papering in the, craps, the cracks of the demographics. It's right. all demographics. Because the demographics is what built the debt to make right. up for the wages that were caused by the demographics. Right. And so it's all trying to offset an aging population. It's why Japan has the same and Europe has the same and Australia has the same and Canada has the same. And Europe has, everybody has the same problem and they're doing exactly the same thing, which is trying to rebalance the balance sheet of the overall economy <coughs> by printing money to offset this issue. So. Let, let me ask a question. So the indebtedness is embedding this growth obligation effectively. So people need to work more or leverage or anything to produce more return. And then you, so, and you're saying that the death birth ratio is uh, presaging the central bank balance sheet by eight to 10 years. I think Labor force participation rate with a birth death rate as a, as the future predictor gives it about, I think we, we can go out about 10 years, 20 years. Okay. So does so we know where ever, CPI is going? We know where it's all going. Does it ever unwind though? Because I have a hard time seeing no. a world where the central bank balance sheet actually starts to decline. Well, we'll talk a bit about the future, but that's a great question. It's what I want to dig in with you about because okay. this is the, the unknown stuff we're going to get into okay. in a bit. So now we've got this monetary printing and it's offsetting the demographics. And you know, you'll see all the charts and people who are watching it will see. I mean, it's kind of spooky. And once mm-hmm. you see it, you can't unsee it. And you realize, okay, I get this now. It's all the same thing. But out of 2008 comes the rise of asset prices and the collapse, and wages don't go up for the wages. So now it's become even harder for anybody to catch up. And now they can't get access to credit either. Mm. Not for a long time, not for seven or eight years before people could start borrowing again because the banks wouldn't lend it to them. Because regulation said, well, the banks, you screwed up, so we're going to stop you lending. Right. Good thing, probably. But it meant that people get poorer, but the debt didn't make them richer anyway. So nobody's winning here. Nobody is winning. And then the monetary printing, without people realizing, people think at first, and I think most people still think today, that the money goes into the banks, it gets lent out, and assets go up because people buy assets. It's simply not true. If you look at the volume of the S&P, it hasn't risen. 
it's the fall in the in the denominator that is mm-hmm. causing all of this to rise right. i.e the debasement is making you poorer and, you know, I've talked about this on Twitter and people don't get it. They think I'm being ridiculous. But this is not, you know, when I show those simple charts divided by the balance sheet, right? this is not some random chart. This is this whole thread that has got yeah. me to understand why this has happened. Yeah. And it took me a long time and bit by bit to build on this understanding. So uh, just, just to explain that real quick. So you're saying when you denominate the S&P growth in growth of central bank balance sheet or gold, I think you basically see it's flat, right? Or everyone thinks- Well, so what's interesting, what got me to get to this point? So I mm-hmm. understood all of this. And I understood the balance sheet was a function of demographics and debt and debt was a function of demographics. It was all kind of all part of the same picture. Mm-hmm. I and everybody else start shouting, it's an everything bubble. Mm-hmm. How does that work? If it's an everything bubble, Why is nobody getting rich, apart from the very rich who've got access to capital? I then start thinking, well, I lived through and worked through and invested through 2000. And that was a bubble because equities decoupled from gold, Mm -hmm. from real estate, from everything. Right. And assets have a relative valuation always have in history. Mm -hmm. So basically, Gold versus real estate is a trade-off everybody will make at a certain point. If real estate is crazy expensive versus gold, at some point, the flow of capital goes the other way because it's an asset. So what's got the higher expected return in the future? Right? Mm-hmm. It's very logical behavior. And equities work the same. They all have this long-term range. The only thing that doesn't, which catches everybody out, is, is uh, industrial commodities and um Industrial commodities and agricultural commodities. Why? Because technology. Mm. You can get more out of the ground. Right, right, right. Yeah. At cheaper prices. Or you grow more bushels of wheat per, per hectare. So those things get cheaper. So CPI gets cheaper because of technology, computing power, all of this stuff. But the actual assets don't get cheaper. Mm. So I looked at all of these. And, and like the S&P versus gold is kind of in line. Nothing wild like one standard deviation expensive for equities, you know, nothing crazy. And real estate the same. So I'm like, what happens if it's something else? What happens if we're just looking at the wrong denominator? And then I thought, well, if the Fed balance sheet is a function of demographics and it is the putting the missing layer in, are they actually debasing the currency? And therefore, if we were to denominate it, basically to discount the dollar by the amount the Fed balance sheet's grown, right. would that show us the truth? And suddenly the charts became really bloody logical because mm-hmm. everyone kind of feels like you didn't get richer. The average person definitely did not get richer after 2008. And when you look at it, the assets didn't perform in line with the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they didn't perform in line with the debasement. So the S&P basically just about made up since 2008, not over 2008, we lost that. It's never coming back. Well, it might do, but it'll take another 20 years. And, you know, gold, real estate, none of these really recovered. <clears throat> they just basically follow the balance sheet. So then I thought I'd head check myself on that too. 
because, you know, everyone was calling me an idiot for saying this. So then I took the UK property prices and divided it by the Bank of England balance sheet, flatline. German property prices, flatline. Swedish property prices, flatline. Canadian property prices, flatline. Australian property prices, flatline. I'm like, wow. yes, this is it. This is debasement. And debasement makes it look deceptively like the value of the assets is going up. Right. It's not. It's the value of the denominator falling. There were two assets that beat, that significantly beat the balance sheet and is above 2008. And they're bloody obvious what they are. One is Bitcoin mm. and the other is the NASDAQ mm. because technology yeah. and this, this you know, network effects age. business model, the digital age yeah. is relentless and destroying everything in its path. Mm-hmm. So all profits accrue. We get that. And that became amazing to me to realize what is now going on. So that 2008 is what gives rise, the final rise, the final push off the edge of the cliff to populism everywhere. Mm -hmm. Because I was in, oh, sorry, then Europe had 2012, where Europe almost went, almost lost its entire banking system and the whole of Europe and the Euro. Mm -hmm. You know, it got really scary. And I was living in Spain. I had to buy tinned food and a generator because I thought we might lose power. I mean, Cyprus took all money out of people's bank accounts above $100,000. So if you were a gas station operating on like 2% margins on on the gas you pump, they took the million dollars out of your bank account, which is your float to to buy the gasoline for each month, and took it and paid the fucking creditors of the bank. And it was your deposit? Yeah. I'm sorry, you didn't own shares in the bank. How dare you do that? Mm -hmm. In Spain, they were converting like grandmother's... um, savings accounts and turning them into preference shares. So you've got a high yield. Wow. And then guess what? They default on payment of the preference shares and they've got nothing and they forced them into it. So this was happening en masse in Europe. And I'm like, okay, I know where this is going. Occupy Wall Street explodes. Mm -hmm. And then in Spain, the indignados, everyone's in the streets rioting. And it's like the people against the state. Hmm because people are angry. They don't know why they're angry. And then what happens after the people become angry phase, it then splits into left and right because they want to blame somebody. Right. Because they can't blame themselves because they are to blame. (laughs) So they blame each other. And the internet comes out of it. And there we are given Facebook. And Facebook is the perfect place to divide everybody. And you throw in the Russians who understand this, and they start using bots to drive apart people, people who are logically centrists. They could have been left and right, but they could have a discussion over over dinner. Now they absolutely hate each other and think it's intolerable, and one's a communist and the other's a fascist. That's where we got to. Hmm. And that came out of 2008 because people now realize that they were never going anywhere. That social contract, the contract of the government and the people had failed. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the government could ever have met it. Don't forget over in Europe, we've got another system issue that we haven't yet faced based on this is how the hell are we going to pay for the healthcare? It was a lovely idea to give free healthcare. But that's a bill we, we can't pay. 
when these baby boomers go through death. In the US, you've got the other problem. Everyone is like raging against the uh, health insurance. Why mm. is health insurance high? Because the baby boomers are going into their aging phase where they're becoming ill. Mm. So you're drawing on your health benefits. So mm -hmm. obviously, it's if you if you report, report a robbery at your house, you know, five months in a row, guess what? Your house insurance is going up. <laughs> so it's a function of demographics. And the other one that killed people was the millennials got killed by education costs. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in a world of free education, but they took that all away because the baby boomers have got too much debts. So right. they couldn't pay for, you know, the governments couldn't pay for all of this anymore. So they force everybody else to pay for their own bloody education at ridiculous rates. And adding the student loan debt on top of that, which is non-dischargeable and bankruptcy. So it's almost like they, they took a complete zig from the zag there with the complete opposite direction from free education to indentured servitude for education. Yeah. So what you've then done is force up education costs. Education mm -hmm. CPI has been falling now for a while because guess what? The 86 million millennials have now left university. Yeah. And the Gen Z is smaller, so it's cheaper, yeah. right? It's demographics again. But two other things go on. One is because it makes those companies rich, they start lobbying to protect their monopolies, mm -hmm. which makes people angry. Again, the food lobby, the oil lobby, the um, uh, the healthcare lobby, you know, all of these people have, the, and the financial lobby clearly want to protect their power now because mm -hmm. they've they've made the most money out of this. But around two thousand and ten, another catastrophe happens. The baby boomers can't afford to retire; only the rich can. So they're leaving the labor force participation rate, and others are being marginalised. So they're still in the labor force. And now they're bloody 86 million kids are. They had too many kids. So now you've got the two largest demographic bulges in all recorded history in the labor force at the same time. And technology is exploding. What do you think is going to happen to society? Do you think this is a smooth thing? No, this is the fourth turning. Right. And the fourth turning is the transition of power from one demographic to the other. Wow. And that is what we're playing out now. And that is going to be the destruction of the rules-based global order system and a rebuilding from scratch. That is the rise of crypto. That is the rise of blockchain. That is the wholesale change. And what is going to come in politics, maybe not what people want to hear, but it's coming and you can't almost avoid it. So that's the next part of this story. But the whole story so far has kind of been built on this, this whole demographic boom mm -hmm. that came out of World War I that led into World War II. And nobody realized this was coming. And everybody's mm -hmm. kind of been rational in the process and become wildly irrational. And now we're at a state where we hit the pandemic. Now in the pandemic, 
Remember, there's always a debt bubble somewhere. So after 2008, that was the end of the household debt bubble. Mm -hmm. We still had the student debt bubble because the millennials hadn't left. So that's going on. But what we get is the new one, which is the corporate debt bubble. So corporate debt explodes because they've got, they do access the credit because it's easy for them to get. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with a bunch of companies that are basically zombies like General Electric and AT&T that are ridiculously in debt, but they can continue to pay the debt because interest payments are almost nothing. Right. So you do that and you ignore, ignite a corporate debt bubble. So we go into the pandemic and the Fed figure this out very fast. They're like, we cannot, if we've got a government debt bubble, a household debt bubble, and a corporate debt bubble, and a financial debt bubble, we no, nothing, nothing in collateral can go down. If it goes down too long for the mark to market, we're all done. This is the game we're now in. So there can be no default. We, we've left the world of supply and demand economics and moved into a world driven predominantly by central bank policy, is what you're saying. Well, yeah. And what they're doing is the rational thing. Yeah. Is if we, if we don't do this, everything's gone and everybody's out of a job and all wealth is destroyed and the pension system, destro- everything is gone. Yeah. It's gone too far. It went too far in the 80s. Right. So it's, we can't look back now and change this. Whatever we want to be, however Austrian we want to be, it can't happen this because is the, everything the is gone. Ultimate rock in a hard place. Right. That's right. Either so they, what they, they end up doing is deflate or they just continue down this path towards crack up boom or some other social upheaval. Yep. And they could have probably got away with it as late as 97, 98 mm-hmm. at the Asian crisis, but they didn't. And I understand, I don't understand why then. The, they should have let whatever banks overlevered, mm-hmm. lending to emerging markets, get into trouble, merge, let the free market take care of it. That was probably the last unforced error where they didn't have to do it. The others were kind of logical because everything had got too far. So we go into the pandemic, the market collapses, the world stops. And the Fed and the government cross a Rubicon, which is they shake hands and say, okay, we're out of bullets. It has to be fiscal stimulus. And we will stop anybody defaulting. So they, and the government said, and we will stop the households defaulting. So the government underwrote every household balance sheet, renters, anybody, nobody's going to default, nothing. We'll give you money. You cannot default. And it's, you know, it's because it's a pandemic. It's not your fault. Whatever. But the point being is you couldn't allow it. The Fed, across the Rubicon, bought corporate bonds. That wasn't to put money into the system. That's because if they had gone bust, it's all over. Right. Because that's the collateral for the system as well. So it's like, this is a horror story. But it worked. World now, saved. Yep. Short. Now, we're talking about the, 
the self-deception, right? Yeah. So we come back to it. So now Janet and Jay look at each other and they're like, kind of worked, right? Two-month recession, whole world shut down, asset prices, record highs, high five. <laughs> Until you divide it by the Fed balance sheet and right. none of it went up. Yeah. Virtually none of it went up. And so they're now, because we've learned this, incentivize even further to do more mm -hmm. because it works optically. Right. Nobody understands, as we've talked about, why they're getting poorer. Yeah. Because they see everybody else getting rich. They think they're stupid. There's something that they're making mistakes, something's wrong, or politics, or whatever, right? Yeah. So now, the money element of this is becoming the, the larger driver where nobody can get onto that ladder of making their money. And the time is ticking for these boomers to be able to retire. The household balance sheets look great because the, the, that was the other big thing. We couldn't let the pension system go bust. Right. Because then we break a promise to all of these 76 million boomers. Yeah. So they basically delivered this to the boomers. And screwed the millennials. <laughs> the thing, what's jumping out to me here is the utter destruction of feedback loops. So we're we're <laughs> debasing and e you know easing the currency supply. This is destroying entrepreneurial feedback loops in, in terms of price signals. But then you're making the point that even Jay and Janet themselves are emboldened in their own action. They think what they did was effective and worked. So they are more likely to take similar and even more extreme actions next time. So there's this total divergence between economic reality and perception driven by debasement of the money. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing that happened <clears throat> is basically everybody's capped bond yields. Even if we have a period of inflation, bonds are not going up in yield because mm -hmm. they will do what they did in the 1940s, which is cap them, yield curve mm -hmm. control, mm -hmm. which is another way of financial repression, which is this is what this is all a story of, right? It's financial repression used to pay the issues caused by the population boom. So financial repression is trying to run inflation hotter than bond yields for an extended mm -hmm. period of time because you deflate your debt away. So bond yields are never going up. So they're pinned around zero, or what, you know, between zero and, or call it negative 1% and up 2% because negative interest rates are another part of this whole financial right, repression right. equation, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's all about the same thing. Nothing is out of, that, out of whack with that. So that whole financial repression has left bond yields flat. There's no return to be had. It's basically like cash, right? So mm -hmm. you can either, you must just hold it in a bank account, but that gets eroded by the debasement of the currency. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't really work. The other thing that's happened, if people notice, is there's been a lot of people screaming the dollar's going to collapse and the dollar's going to rally. And and what's happened is the dollar, in defined by the DXY, the dollar index, is traded sideways for seven years. Currency volatility is gone. Because every central bank is doing the same thing. It's not a story of the United States. This is a story of every developed country on earth. So all of their currencies are in line with each other. 
Because all the way, the, the old world of looking at relative currencies, that's basically nothing. So you don't have a currency market that operates. You don't have a bond market that operates. You don't have a credit market that operates. So what you've created is free capital, and that's created a technology boom. Great, except that's going to destroy the jobs of these millennials. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so it is a big, big mess. And it's been in the making for a hundred years almost. Well, almost exactly a hundred years. That's the issue with these demographic things because it's, you can never turn them. You can't change it. You right. cannot change the fact that China's population is now shrinking. You just can't change it. So China's trend rate of GDP is going to collapse, and they're going to be stuck with this massively indebted society. And a smaller population. And Japan has the same. Japan has household savings, at least. China's got debts up to its eyeballs. So we're all in this boat together. And the answer, if you or I were put into the central bank, we can all scream about it on Twitter all day. Mm. But nobody's going to press the nuke button now. You can't do it. Right. You just simply can't do it. Because that's like the Argentina crisis. That's a total wipeout of household, corporate, government net worth. Okay, so the de- one pattern I'm detecting here is this debasement was blowing bubbles into equities, as we saw in the run-up to 2001. Then we saw it in real estate in 2008. Where we are today, it, it looks like they're just directing this into government bonds. Aren't we blowing a bubble into U.S. Treasuries? No, I don't think I don't believe so because, as we mentioned, demographics define CPI and GDP growth. Bonds are basically GDP plus inflation, long-term inflation. So, what bonds are telling you is GDP plus inflation is going to be was going to average out over the next 10 years at 1.7%. Sounds about right to me. Hmm. Call it, you know, 75 basis points inflation, 75 basis points GDP growth. That'll be in line with Japan. You know, whichever the mix is going to be. Mm-hmm. Because you can't, demographics is the truth. Right. Doesn't check. You can't change that. You can't change any of this. So once you've got this, we need to figure out what we can do. So what I've explained is I think bonds are actually rational and I, because of these demographic factors. And I think they're rational around the world. They look like they're manipulated. They can't spike in these cyclical phases, but the secular phase they continue. But what I've actually laid out for you is my entire macro framework, mm-hmm. the framework I've been building for 30 years. And it was only in this last recession that I realized that one part of my framework was wrong, which was that I thought 
I thought the insolvency could happen. I thought that the pension system, the equity market could fall, hmm. and that that would be the phase as the boomers sold out, that it would bring the equity market lower. There is a possibility you're going to get periods of sideways, you know, um, as people sell and there's no central bank excess printing going on. So you get these sluggish periods, but it's almost impossible to allow the asset side of the balance sheet fall. Right. They, they would so, basically annihilate the currency through debasement before they would let that happen, is what you're saying. What other choice do you have? Right. In the current construct, mm -hmm. the choice they have made is interesting, and we'll come on to that, which is fiscal stimulus. And that could work. It worked in the 1940s and 50s, based mm -hmm. on very similar debt types, but not as big, but the high debt burdens. Give it a 20-year period, stimulate the economy run up government debt, but the economy stimulated enough because of the baby boomers mm -hmm. to rise GDP growth enough that the debt became much less in percentage of GDP terms. That trick's not going to come again now. Right. But fiscal does help, or where it's going does help. Fiscal's a blunt tool, much like monetary policy, because it kind of sprays to everybody. Mm -hmm. But what we're getting is something different, which is going to be behavioral incentives driven by fiscal policy using central bank digital currency rails, programmable money. And we'll come on to that in a bit as well. But if you go back then, so 2008, another you know, era-defining thing happens, which is the Satoshi White Paper, mm -hmm. right? That's all a function of this. It's all a function of the same thing. And I think this whole thing ends with a whimper and not a bang. If it was going to end with a bang, it would have done it last year. Mm -hmm. That would have that. Should, if there was no intervention by government, it was the end of everything. Mm -hmm. But it didn't happen that way. So they've got the trick that they know is debasement hides the reality. So what's interesting is people have started to figure this out. They've started to figure out they're getting screwed. Mm -hmm. And the figuring out getting screwed drives you to look for answers. The traditional answer was gold. Hasn't done great. It's done okay. It's done its job. But the problem is, is the millennials can't generate wealth. If gold defends your wealth. Right. There's nothing to defend. <laughs> nothing to defend. Yeah. So it becomes incredibly difficult to generate wealth. Bitcoin comes along, it changes the equation. It takes a long time for people to see it, but you know, these things, this adoption takes a while. Mm -hmm. But people realize, okay, here is a construct, a technological construct that has ubiquitous global scarcity. And therefore, if we all perceive it to have value then it shall be so. Mm -hmm. And so the migration begins. And I think of it as a migration <laughs> to this parallel financial system that's being built in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. 
The rise of DeFi was the other huge thing that happened. People haven't got their heads around what this means yet, mm-hmm. but it is gigantic because basically people don't trust financial intermediaries any longer. Again, they want to blame somebody, so blame right. the banks. It wasn't but, the bank's fault. They just did the rational thing. This is rational again, too, right? If you can get a financial product of any kind with less counterparty risk that renders the same services, of course, you're going to opt for that. Of course. (laughs) Of course. And, you know, that's that was the first thing. And I saw it very fast when I saw Bitcoin 2012 after Europe. I realized, okay, yeah, I get this totally. This is the future of everything because I'd learned some shocking things in 2012. I went around the world to try and start the world's safest bank. And at the time, my idea was it should hold all deposits in treasury bonds of whichever country it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would be default risk-free pretty much so. Mm-hmm. you know. And I tried to do it, but it's very hard to start a bank. <laughs> and you know, I had some kind of pretty wealthy people, well-regarded people with me on that journey. It was just too hard. Mm-hmm. And then somebody showed me Bitcoin. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. And then I was at um, somebody's ranch. I I won't name them. Um, And we had a meeting with the DTCC, who clear and custody all US securities, the New York Fed. I'd read a book, I can't remember what it's called, about the European side of the equation in 2008, and Euroclear is the European equivalent of DTCC. Mm-hmm. When Lehman went under, everyone stopped paying into Euroclear. So this is the clearing and settlement of all bonds, equities, everything. Mm-hmm. Because nobody knew what collateral there was. Then 2012 come, oh, So, So what happens is, is over that period, the ECB lends Euroclear $50 billion on the day Lehman goes under. Mm-hmm. And what was shocking in the book is as collateral, they took the bank's positions. Hmm. At Euroclear level, they're not segregated with customer and house positions. Mm-hmm. So basically, had it got worse, had AIG gone under, which was a AAA credit, the whole system would have had taken a haircut and it would have, we wouldn't have known. So what we think is segregated and safe is actually not segregated and safe. Right. So then when Europe almost went under, we almost lost a sovereign state. That is the collateral of the system. That is the bottom of the pile. That is everything. And that is why Europe could not go. Because if it went, then that's the end. Because then the collateral layer is gone. The right. safest collateral of all, the government bond layer. So then I'm in this room with the DTCC and the New York Fed. And I say to the DTCC, I'm like, no, I said to the Fed first. I said, so let's say the DTCC has a huge default and JP Morgan defaults. Yeah, there's a mm-hmm. problem. It goes under. And there's a big hole because nobody's paying anybody anything. The system freezes up. What do you guys do? 
said, oh, oh, we'll lend them money. You know, they can't go under. Great. DTCC, at that level, what do you pledge as collateral? And they said the same thing that the ECB did. And I said, is there a segregation at your level between customer and house? No. I'm like, okay, so nobody's safe. So the point being, what Bitcoin saw to me was that blockchain allowed the secure recorded ownership of everything where it was traceable to who owns what. That was the problem that we had is nobody knows who the hell owns what in an over-leveraged financial system. So th- these are the DTCC and Euroclear. They're effectively the property layers of these financial systems, where instead of holding your own stock certificate or bond that would be presumably a bare asset redeemable to the issuer, these systems hold all property Correct. rights and all stock certificates, all bonds, Everything. But they're not segregating them, mapping them to specific owners. So well, they sure are. All- they are until it's the DTCC themselves who are on the hook. Gotcha. Okay. Then all bets are off, and it's each man for himself. Got it. So this becomes another mechanism through which they're socializing losses from economic shocks. They would do. It's never happened yet. Okay. But. The fragility is there. Right. The other fragility was obviously the derivative market that nobody can figure out because there's one quadrillion of those outstanding. Mm-hmm. Right. So they start centralizing that as well, yeah. putting it into the CME and the other exchanges, ICE and stuff, to try and have some way of figuring out how the hell to stop it when it all goes wrong. But blockchain changed that because I saw it immediately and thought, well, every single security on earth is going on blockchain. Mm-hmm. Now, how decentralized it needs to be for that, open to debate. Mm-hmm. But it, it needs to be decentralized enough, and it needs to be on a blockchain that you can prove it. Mm-hmm. So this is where a lot of people start waking up and going, okay, we need a different way of doing things. And so the big dynamic, sorry to interrupt, is this shift from a top-down centralized and the DTCC or Euroclear to something, a consensus that is more distributed and transparent for market actors? Correct. Okay. So if 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 you're if you're the base layer of collateral, your equity or whatever it is that's been relent and reused and whatever it is, mm-hmm. when it all goes wrong, the blockchain has full recorded every transaction. Mm-hmm. So it's not hidden somewhere. I mean, half the bloody swaps contracts were in bits of paper and drawers because derivatives was exploding in the market and nobody had the technology to onboard all of this stuff into a system that could record it. Right. You know, the same is true probably of insurance. If California has an earthquake, you know, who's double insured, who's single insured, who's claiming what? Nobody the hell knows. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody knows any of this stuff in the in the current system. It's got itself into a mess. So all of this becomes interesting. So the rise of crypto becomes an obvious thing, and it becomes a migration. So what I think you're going to see, and there's a lot more to come on this, 
what you're going to see is a ongoing gradual debasement and an ongoing gradual migration. So more people opt out. Yeah. Yeah. And the people who see it last are the ones who get hurt the most. Or maybe it's just the rich who see it last because they got the least to lose because they're getting access to the money and they can make the money and they're buying equities and they think all is fine. You know, rich people can buy real estate on leverage and, you know, all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but maybe maybe they're the last to see it. Some see it, obviously, and others probably don't mm-hmm. because they're all okay. And, you know, their S&P portfolio has gone up and their gold looks fine, and but they don't realize that they're probably getting net poorer. I mean, one of the conversations I've had with corporate treasurers um, was that uh, presents some of the biggest corporate treasures in America. And I'm like, guys, what do you use your cash for? And they're like, well, we use it for share buybacks, M&A, and, you know, cash cushion, and um, we purchased real estate. Mm-hmm. Like, Fantastic. Great. Okay. So your cash, you earn what? You know, maybe they're great treasurers. Maybe they get 3% on their cash. I'm like, great. Look at the price of assets. They're going up at about 15% a year, 20% a year in line with the balance sheet. So next year, you can buy less of your shares back or less of another company mm-hmm. or less of um, real estate. Real estate. <laughs> so this is why you need Bitcoin on your balance sheet because it actually helps offset it because it's got the two benefits of it's got that kind of exponentiality, the call option on the future, the network mm-hmm. effect, and it's got the the other side of the equation, which is it offsets debasement. So mm-hmm. it's got this kind of double feature. Gold doesn't have the double feature. It's got the one feature. Right. Bitcoin has the two features. So I'm like, this is what you need, and this is how it's going to work. So, okay, let's look a little bit into the usual answers and why they're not going to work. And then you and I can maybe brainstorm some of the potential things once we free ourselves from our political ideology and our economic ideology. We have to get pr- pragmatic, right? There's no other answer, and I'll show you why. So the answer from the right is trickle-down economics and tax cuts on corporations. Right. That has never worked. Right. Just does not work. And it's proven time and time again that it does not work. Mm-hmm. Raising taxes on the rich. That's the left's great argument. Well, the rich simply aren't rich enough to pay for anything mm-hmm. because there's 200-odd million of that lower income bracket. So how is this going to help? Yes, I understand rich people don't pay their fair share of taxes um, in certain respects because there's more loopholes available. Fine. But generally, this is not going to answer your question. This is not going to solve the world's problems. It's not going to pay off the, com- the government debt. The other one is, well, cut interest rates. That's the usual answer. Well, we kind of know that doesn't work, right? Yeah. And that makes the rich richer. The people with access to the capital have more capital and more leverageability, and they make more money, and everybody else gets screwed. Then there's deficit spending, the fiscal Mm -hmm. stimulus. Fiscal stimulus does put money in the hands of poorer people, but you debase the currency. Right. (laughs) So their assets go up, and they don't get anywhere. It's okay if you do it for 
living improvements like healthcare, because that's a that's probably a net benefit. You probably would don't mind being slightly poorer in the future, but healthier. That's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. That's an okay trade-off. You may want to take it. You may not want to take it. It's up to the individual. The Austrian approach is let it all fucking burn. <laughs> well, it's way too late. Yeah. You know, you're everybody's an Austrian economist until it happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I you know, I'm a business cycle guy. I get it. Yeah. But we lost that that train left the station in 1997. Yeah. I would argue that a lot of these, I mean, all roads lead back to this Austrian worldview, though. Because so we've got wealth redistribution. If you tax the rich, you're going to incentivize the rich to hold their assets in something that's untouchable, right? That road leads to Bitcoin. Trickle down economics, more debasement, that road leads to Bitcoin. Cut rates, more debasement, that road leads to Bitcoin. Or you can have this deficit spending, fiscal stimulus, also creates debasement, which leads to Bitcoin. So I have a very hard time seeing how this doesn't end in a more Austrian world. Yes, but the Austrian view can't prevail right now in terms That's of right. crazy It has destruction. to blow itself up or I agree with or you. The whimper Austrian itself, like, whimper itself out. Yes, yes. Instead of... Wh- step back and let it burn. This thing is going to gas its own fire until there's nothing left of Bitcoin. It's going to, it's going to play out. Yeah. Um, However that plays out. And there are potential things that can save this. The other thing is the other approach is extending the working age um, even further to push out the payments (laughs) of pensions and the offset the demographics, it, you know, it doesn't help. There's too many people in the workforce as it is, as we've kind of proven in this discussion. So those are the the normal ways of doing it. Yeah, and I ask you a question here: Is there an incentive embedded in all this for population reduction? Of course there is. Why do you think the population is reducing everywhere? Just, Americans had the smallest, and here is the self-balancing mechanism of humanity. Mm-hmm. Because what is about to happen is the exponential age, where technology takes over everything. Mm-hmm. Every lower-income job, every middle-income job, and half the high-end jobs. Mm-hmm. And this is the problem we have to solve. And so this whole that whole thing comes. And if you get it right, and here's the optimism, your GDP per capita explodes mm-hmm. because the population shrinks. So millennials are not having kids in the same numbers, and nor will Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it in Japan. We've seen it in Europe. Every aging country, same. So all of the eight, I think we'll probably peak at about 9.5 billion people, 10 billion people yep. globally. And then we're probably likely to decline for however long, a few hundred years, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. because robots are going to replace humans. So we don't need humans. So humans on a simple level will just say, well, I can't afford to have kids, which has been partly what's going on. That's what happened, particularly in Europe. And then it becomes, well, I don't know what job I've got. And 
poorer countries don't need as many humans to look after family units for income and all of that kind of stuff. So that whole equation changes with technology, but technology is going to change a lot of this. And within that, I think is where some of the potential optimism can lie. And I think the optimism comes for me for two things. One is the formation of online nation states, mm. which I think are communities. You see me talking a lot about community tokens and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of Bitcoin as an online nation state, mm-hmm. that would be true. Mm-hmm. And other there will be other nation states. The moment that Facebook tokenize, even with DM, they have their own system of money. They have their own rules, organization, mm-hmm. mission. That's a complex, adaptive society, and that's a nation state. Mm-hmm. Three and a half billion people, it's the largest nation state on earth. <laughs> How powerful is that? This is why everybody's bloody terrified of Facebook having their own currency. Right. So they have to peg it to the dollar, <laughs> right? Because that's a nation state. So, but we've created the foundations for nation states. And where this is all going is the metaverse. The metaverse is discovering the Americas again, or even a new solar system. What you're doing, if you think of the world as constrained by its own GDP, because of humans, productivity, resources, the metaverse has none of that. So there is a possibility that the metaverse allows us people to earn incomes in a world free of the constraints, free of the debt shackle in this new world of crypto that allows us to create our own worlds in the way that we want it. And they are kind of, if you go to its logical conclusion, it's kind of, we create our own fake world, however we right. want it to be. And you can live in whatever world you want. Like you and I will live in different online worlds. You'll be on you know, one social media site, I'll be in the other. We'd be reading different articles. We live in different worlds already. Right. You know, our worlds overlap quite a lot, but we live in different worlds. Yeah. But sooner or later, I can be in a room with different people. Right. And they can be all around the world. And they can all be all like-minded, which creates all this splits and a realignment of what states are and... This whole thing of this fourth turning is we're going to a very, very different world, much like the post-British Empire world was very different to that world. Right. You know, Earl, here you're speaking to my soul, actually, because ever since I started playing massive online multiplayer games when I was 13, you know, it was 20, 25 years ago, I was 11, I had this deep intuition that this was going to be where the world was going. It's like it was, there were just so many factors that could be economized in the digital world that you can't do in the real world. There's, just, there's a lot of advantages. And now that we see tech becoming increasingly immersive too, like right now we're still talking through a screen, you and I, I'm looking at a laptop, you know, we're, we're yeah, but this, don't forget, if we'd done this two years ago, we'd have done it in a studio together. Right. Exactly. We've so already transitioned to this is normal. Yes. So there's been this accelerant on the use of digital technology, but now the immersiveness of digital technology is also growing in tandem. So this, my longstanding thesis for the world is that the the real world is becoming a video game. And so to hear you say that everything's headed into the metaverse, that resonates with me. 
very loudly. So the question you and I need to think about is, okay, a full immersive metaverse experience is 15, 20 years away. Now, the metaverse is not one place. It's not one thing. Right. I, I think of it as like this digital fluidity where we can move around, we do our oh, things, yeah. we live in the real world, in this digital world, augmented reality, virtual reality. That's all coming. We know yeah. that. How the hell do you stop this holding out of people in the meantime? And this is the story now of, I think, and this is really contentious. I think the central bank digital currencies are going to give governments an opportunity to fiscally stimulate in a way that's more fair. Hmm. Because I think they can therefore put money in the right people. We're going, we have to go towards a UBI world, whether we like it or not, until we can replace that income by metaverse and other income. We're seeing it. People are earning money in Axie Infinity. The stuff going on, we're just not there yet. How do we get through this next 15 years, right? That's what I'm really worried about. This next 15, 20 years is about as hard as it comes. Mm -hmm. We're going to have deflationary forces on a gigantic scale. Jobs are going to be replaced. We've got debasement of currency going on. We've got the battle of getting crypto mainstream that governments don't overregulate it and you know all of the things we've got that's we've got 20 years of a battle here yeah and, and bitcoin too the more it's succeeding in this process the more pressure is being put on governments to debase further right they're they're losing reservation demand for fiat currency by people seeking out alternative stores of value so that creates even more inflationary pressure and more economic dispossession. Well, because if we all take our money out of the system, which is the collateral of the system, <laughs> there's no money in the system, right? Exactly. And there's no velocity of money in the old system. It's all in the new system. And we're seeing the velocity of money in the new system by the rise of NFTs, right? Yeah. That's pure velocity of money going on. Right. Right? That's a vibrant economy where people would speculate, take risks, do stuff because it's, you know, people are spending money, mm-hmm. selling things, buying things. Fine. In the regular world, it's not the same. We've got the velocity of money that's falling because of this demographic and the debt and all of the other mm-hmm. stuff. So I do think that you can you don't have a choice but to change how you stimulate. Because let's assume, as you and I have, that debasement is accepted. That is the only answer they've got, mm-hmm. and it's going to keep going, right? So how do you stop the people revolting? Right. You have to give them money so you're or opportunity. Redirecting the flow of the Cantillon effect or the redistributive um, quality of debasement away from asset owners and towards the working class? Capital to wages. to Yeah, yeah. it's capital to labor. That has yeah. to happen. Right. Right. And this is why the progressive left is going to be hard to beat. Hmm. Because... Regardless of your political affiliation or your economic affiliation, populism, you've got 86 million millennials who are pissed at what's happened, and they tend to be more progressive in their attitude. Right. And they want the rights that their parents got, which is the rights of the American dream. The the baby boomers never got it in the end. They kind of destroyed it all. But so... They are going to force by voting power 
progressive policies. And again, whether anybody likes it or not, because the nostalgia of the 1950s of the current structure of the right doesn't play to the young. Right. The 1950s is like talking about the 1920s boom time to you and I. It means nothing. Oh, Something we see in films or read in a book, right. like The Great Gatsby. Yeah. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. While the baby boomers, they were in their teens. It was Elvis Presley and rock and roll and the Beatles. And they want to go back to that. Of course, they do. everybody wants to go back to their teens, right? <laughs> um, so, so I think that is likely to come. And I think that's the big fourth turning change that happens, that everybody shifts left. Let, let me ask you a question about this. So I, I, the metaverse, if this emerges in the way that you're describing, it becomes something that's much more, let's call it mainstream, I guess. Isn't this also simultaneously awakening people from the illusion of the nation state to a large extent? Because you're moving into this alternative reality that has its own money, has its own rules, has its own system. And then you start to look at the system you inhabit in the physical world in a very different way as a result. Whereas right now, it seems like people are largely blind to this. It's kind of hidden in plain sight. Do you think that's going to contribute to changes in perceptions, attitudes, the way we organize ourselves? I think it's a layer on top of the nation state. The nation state ends up being your foundation layer and you can move mm -hmm. and you'll be less nervous of moving because that passport doesn't mean everything in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't just think we'll think about it very differently. We'll think of, and you could see it forming online, particularly around crypto and NFTs and these communities is people are, are forming communities of people, mm -hmm. right? Whatever that end state ends up being irrelevant. The point being is this is where it's going and fast. And I think you're right. How will people think about nation states? Can nation states survive in this? Right. Is Facebook the nation state? Right. Will Epic Games be the nation state? Are nation states distributed? Are right. they? I don't know, but it's fascinating because. And how are nation states when robots, or the kind of you're heading towards a singularity? Obviously, in all of this, yeah. What is a nation state? He holds the power. I I I don't know. And there's a dystopian version of this, and there's a right. there's a utopian version of this. Yeah. And humans will probably walk the middle line, as we always do, yeah. and we'll flip between one and the other. Um, but you know, that's it's all. It's this period of the twenty years that I'm worried about. But the sooner we all start migrating, which you and I did a while ago, mm. the easier it becomes to see that the emperor's got no clothing, the easier it is to realize, stop waiting for the big bang, understand what the game is. The game is not what you want it to be. The game is what it is. And you have to play the game you're given. Well, so too many people spend so long angry that the game is not being played as they want it to be. Right. Nobody cares. <laughs> right. It's, you know, it's, this is why everybody imposes their politics on everything. Nobody cares. Yeah. The game is what's being served to you. You deal with that. Play the hand you're dealt. I think it's excellent advice. And it's just occurring to me by just denominating yourself in Bitcoin, 
you are able to see the truth of what's going on. Like to your point, this boom in the equities market, like it goes away when you denominate yourself accordingly. It also lets you participate in this price deflationary reality of the new digital universe, right? If you're just denominating yourself in Bitcoin, things are getting cheaper. Life's getting easier. So it's funny to me, like, it really does seem like we've diverged from truth significantly by with all these economic machinations. And now the digital world is just kind of throwing water over it. And it's like revealing truth again. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. I'm not sure what a deflationary world does to other aspects of being a human. Mm -hmm. Because it almost stops all spending. Mm -hmm. Because your money becomes the saving, the asset now. Right. If your money is the asset, then you don't buy anything. You invest, maybe, right? So it would be a trade-off from consumption to investment. Why invest if your money goes up? You don't do anything. Velocity of money could go to zero if you're not careful. That's the only thing I can't get my head around, is how do you stop velocity of money going to zero? Which is what happened in Japan. Yeah. So yeah, I guess the general theory in Bitcoin, at least, is that if it reaches a maturity, it's only appreciating whatever your number two, 3% a year in tandem with global GDP were equivalent. And so you would want to invest to outperform that. Yeah. The problem is between here and there. Oh yeah. From here to there, it probably goes to zero and Bitcoin eats everything. And you know, that's actually quite problematic because right now, as I keep saying is why would I invest outside of crypto? I cannot see anything that's going to give me that rate of return. So my money's not coming back into the financial system. Yes, I have a few lifestyle things that I do, yeah. you know, dirt your house and buy a new car and stuff like that. Yeah. But on balance, I'm not even investing in the regular economy. Yeah. Nobody's getting my money. Well, that, I mean, that's interesting. Nobody's thinking that through. Right. What happens to all this capital that's sloshing around for, you know, startups and everything else? Well, the exponential age does mean that that there is a chance that that stuff performs extraordinarily. All mm -hmm. of these technologies, from genetic sciences to um, to AI to space to all of this stuff, they're all network effect businesses, and they're all mm -hmm. gigantic. So there is a chance that you can still continue to to earn supernormal profits that will, at times, compete with with the you know with Bitcoin and will exceed it at certain points in time, and that's great. Mm -hmm. That drives innovation. But you're going to starve the capital to anywhere else, which is why the central bank keeps printing money, because mm -hmm. somebody needs to provide capital to General Electric and AT&T. Right. <laughs> it's incredible. You have this collision of a, the vicious cycles surrounding central banking with a virtuous cycle of something like Bitcoin. So, that's right. The other thing that I'm thinking through because i don't know any of the answers and i'm also trying to free myself of my opinion and think about what is most likely which is why you know the shift in politics and mm -hmm. and central bank digital currencies and how stimulus works and all of that because that's the trick that they've learned um and i spoke to the the, the uh, monetary authority of singapore two days ago just interviewed somebody 
um, programmable money. They're all going to do it. And it will get used nefariously and it'll get used for good and we'll, we'll see. And mm-hmm. it depends whether democracies hold up enough to keep power in check or not. Again, we don't know. Humans have the history of one way or the other yeah. and swinging wildly. So we will see. The other thing I'm particularly interested in is owning our own identity online. Mm-hmm. So digital identity, I think, is going to become important because we're about to move into this metaverse world. And right now, we're being exploited, right? as almost farm workers were exploited in the past, mm-hmm. by the use of our identity to generate revenues for monopolies. And I think that needs to be shared. And I think that's a great way of generating a capitalist version of universal basic income. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world, right? You, your digital footprint generates revenue for you. Correct. And sure, share it with the company because they give you the opportunity, yeah. but you share it. Right. And then, okay, now we've done this. And the other thing you know, I talk a lot about is tokenization of communities. That allows you to invest in culture and earn different forms of income. All of this, I think, is some of the solutions that are going to help people because digging stuff out of the ground, making stuff, including food and experiences, is all going to be digitized. Mm. The other thing that I'm trying to get my head around is also within my macro framework is everything digital goes to zero in cost of production. Mm-hmm. And Except, that's going to be electric. And that's going to be electricity as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, electricity. It's going to go to zero. That's what's going on. That is what the EV revolution, uh, the, the uh, green revolution is, green energy revolution. Technology is going to drive the cost of energy to zero. What does that mean for the world? Well, clearly it powers the metaverse. But what productivity does that unleash? That's a hell of a shock. I mean, that is... Because if you remember, oil has been roughly the same versus wages, blah, 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 inflation-adjusted terms forever. Yeah. It got a bit cheaper in in recent years because of fracking, because that was technology, blah, blah, blah. But electricity is going to go to zero, however you generate it in the end. That's a, that's a, that's a shock, to, a positive shock to the world, of which I can't get my head around. I mean, that's global prosperity like we've never seen before, right? Because energy is fundamental to everything else. If you've got free energy, everyone's filthy rich. Yeah. And you've got a low, smaller population. Wow. So by the time the baby boomers die off in the next 20 years, the US population starts shrinking, as Europe's is, Japan's is, China's is, etc. So electricity costs go to zero over the next 30 years, let's say. And you've got less population. And your GDP per capita has probably gone up because the robots are doing the work. If you can share some of that with the population and not mm-hmm. to just give it all to Elon Musk or whoever, you know, builds out Mm -hmm. these things. That's the problem here is, do you create super, super ridiculous wealth? Um, How do you make sure that it's not even labor anymore, how people as humans can participate in an economy? Right. Your cost of living may go close to zero, but I still don't know, you know, if you've got Bitcoin and 
your cost of living, you know, electricity collapses, cost of production collapses. Great. So the cost of goods keeps falling. It's very deflationary. Yeah. So that's that's all good. But the problem is if somebody owns all the robots, they have all the power mm-hmm. and all the money. So that equation still has to be solved somewhere in this because the free market ain't going to solve it. It's going to solve it the wrong way. It's going to solve it with a total accumulation of wealth. By the so that's, that's the utopian dystopian dial here is the more decentralized this transition is, the better it is um, from an equality. I want to say equality. That word is so loaded from a more uh, fair outcome standpoint versus all of this wealth and power being accumulated into the hands of whoever uh, provides the tech. Yeah. But how do you stop that? Yeah. I don't know. These are the, these are the hard problems, right? Because the technology is coming and nothing can stop it. Mm -hmm. Capital is now free and it's not going up. The cost Mm -hmm. of electricity is going to collapse and it's not ever going up again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. It goes up because of the price of oil and the supply shocks, but over time we know what's happening. So Somebody's going to get immensely rich. Now, we can all invest in the exponential age. We can all have crypto with this, things we mm. can do. But I, I can't get my head around where the power goes here. I get it in the metaverse. If we get Tim Sweeney's world, it's a nicely distributed you know, place where everybody has a share of it. Yeah. If it's Zuckerberg's world, and there will be many of these worlds, well, Facebook has the power. Yeah. But who owns the AI and the robots? This is what nobody's figuring out. Because if they've replaced all mankind's productivity, how do humans get money? Well, we've figured they can earn it on the metaverse, but don't forget, AI works in the metaverse too. Right. So there's going to be an arms race there. It's it's a tough old place for humans. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> presumably... This far into the digital age, we've seen the open network outcompete closed networks and that the internet outcompeted intranets. So presumably the open network would continue to outcompete, which would mean a lot of this value would flow into something like Bitcoin. Um, but there is that issue of, I guess, capturing the value that's created in this transition is very unclear to me. Yeah, and this is the thing I've got. So Bitcoin, fine. We use that as a layer. We've yeah. got it, right? It's there. It's yeah. working. So we've got that. We've got the fallen electricity. We've got the uh, um, the accelerating technology. So these are net good things, generally. Mm-hmm. We've got the lowering of population, which means GDP per capita can begin to rise again in some point. Mm-hmm. So that all feels okay. We've got the metaverse. But this bit in the middle is like, you know, if the world is being run by AI, can that be distributed? I, I, I don't know. How does that work? How does uh, and the uh, how do the robots work? Because in twenty years' time, yeah, we got robot vacuum cleaners. In twenty years' time, we got robot fucking everything. Who owns them? This is where it gets so confusing to me because if it is uh, this AI running the world again, presumably that would be something that's hopefully open source. I mean, I guess if it was fully closed source and it's AI running the world, whoever owns that source code is the dictator of this metaverse or digital world. But it's an arms race then. So anybody who creates the best AI, like Renaissance Capital did it in financial markets, yeah, they take, they take all the super normal profits. Yeah. Even if the ending result is a distributed right. network, 
there are going to be parts of that network, which is we're seeing in in the internet now, where winner takes everything. Yeah. Winner takes everything for periods of time. Yeah. I mean, the very concept of ownership and property gets called into question here too, because if there is some kind of super dominant AI, does it, does it own itself? Does, I mean, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. It does it own itself, which is the singularity. Because yeah. if it owns itself, then it wins. Because as we know, the horrible thing, and people are warning us and nobody's listening, is it will understand violence. And so we start again. Right. That is... Because violence is power, power is state and control and profits. Yeah. Well, scary. Do you, man, do you think that, um, so you mentioned ID, identification being a big deal so that we can actually yeah. earn revenue with the, the digital uh, and also we can remain anonymous and move around yes. and use an avatar. So, we can have multiple identities hidden behind with zero knowledge proofs right. with our identity behind all of that stuff. That's what I wanted to ask you is, do you see a decoupling here of identification where you have a state ID, you have a non-state online alias, you may have an earning you alias. Have a, your, we talked about these different nation states. I think they all mm-hmm. require ID. Yeah. Now, whether your state ID is the verifier or not, irrelevant. Right, because with zero knowledge proofs, you don't need to show it to anybody. Right. So I can exist in three parts of the metaverse with different personas. I can be a man, a woman. I can be an animal, and nobody needs to know. But when you come to me and say, "Are you real? Can I, you know, can I trust you with something?" You can prove it. Yeah, I can prove it without showing. That's incredible. I mean, this is going to have such profound impact on I, I mean the even idea of identity nationalism every it's going to change us so much yeah and this again just plays so well into that fourth turning that book just kind of changed my life yeah i must have read it eight times wow the last few chapters because it's like it was written in 96 god damn it yeah and demographics is the future. And there it's all laid out and why, and it's playing out almost exactly. Wow. I got to read this book. You've not read it? No, I've read The Sovereign Individual a few times, and I've heard The Fourth Turning is the other must read, but I've also heard that there's some some overlap there. So, And I've not read The Sovereign Individual, which is a Mm. must do, but The Fourth Turning is amazing, and it explains what it... It doesn't explain, well, it explains what's going on, but it also makes you fear it less Hmm. because you kind of accept, okay, we've got a societal change underway. So let's look at the future. And if we get the future right, A, we can invest in it, make money from it, and we can not fear it. A lot of what you see online is fear of change, the anger. Yeah. Right, people are angry with each other. People are angry at Kathy Woods. Yeah. Why? How can you be angry with Kathy Wood? Why? Because she is somebody who's suggesting change, and people right. don't want it. People hate Elon Musk. Why? Yeah, he's got kind of dodgy accounting and all that stuff, but but basically, it's because 
we're going behind the 1950s idea of your Ford Mustang V8. Right. And it's a world of something different. And we fear it. Why the energy, the fear of green energy, and it's all fear of change, all of it. Right. Why do half the people hate Bitcoin? It's irrational. Yeah. It's right. fear of change, fear of technology. Absolutely. Fear of technology, because we're going through the largest technological advance in all human history at the fastest pace we've ever seen. Right. And it's only going to accelerate as we go through this exponential age. So that is going to shake society's foundations to its core. And, you know, we don't know how that's going to play out necessarily, but it's going to get ugly for a while because people just fear all of this stuff. Yeah, so these, these are cases of people shooting the messengers effectively, right? They're saying, this is happening. Here's how I'm going to invest around it and build for it. Um, but we, I mean, this reinforces for me the importance of open-mindedness and humility at this point in history too, because... I mean, clearly you've laid out a very in-depth look at how we got to here. But when we turn the lens and look forward, both you and I are like, I, I mean, this could go. I don't know. The possibility spectrum has just exploded. Yeah. And it can be terrible. It can be amazing. Yes. We have no idea how this plays out. Generally, what I've learned is humans tend to go from one to the other, mm -hmm. but we end up usually in the middle path. Mm -hmm. But what that middle path is, when we've got such a massive change, I, robots, AI, people can live to 150 years old. What the fuck does that all mean? I That's an interesting know. one too. We didn't mention that, but yeah, the oh. idea of life, life expectancy doubling or something like that. Yeah. Well, if you read David Sinclair's book, uh, Lifespan, I don't know if you've read it yet. Mm -mm. It's unbelievable. So he's probably the leading age genetic scientist in the world. He's at Harvard runs one of the teams at Harvard, wrote the book about it. And he's basically, well, from their work, age is a disease and it's solvable. <laughs> wow. So he just thinks humans have a much longer lifespan than anybody realizes. So I think we're going to see an exponential. What his view is, is yet another exponential. This one in human life. Also, that means that you're less likely to have kids again, for the same reason. Yeah. And then what happens to demographics then? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. How, how do they earn money? I, I don't know. I mean, you know what else is funny is if the if cost of energy goes towards zero, like you're describing, finance and money and wealth and occupation, all of these things fall away as uh, such an important component of our identity because you just won't need to work as much. Like in that world of near zero energy, then, it's you're working a couple hours a week to make ends meet. So then, you know, this is another thing that many people actually in Silicon Valley are thinking through because they they saw this years ago. None of us believed it. Mm -hmm. They're like, humans going to have to have a purpose <laughs> because right now our purpose is our work, right? And we're going to be deprived of work. So what the hell are you going to do for people? We don't know. That's not been solved. <laughs> it's a lot to digest. It is. It is. And it's all a function of demographics. Wow. Because demographics drove down the cost of capital. 
which accelerated the pace of innovation. Right. So we've caused the seeds of our own demise or accelerated it. Right. Because our demographics lowered the cost of capital. It's, it's an unbelievable story. To the point where innovation now has the potential to fundamentally change the nature of demographics through all of these things we're Correct. describing. It's incredible. And the nature of humanity. Yes. And society. And nation states. Everything. Wow. Because it's already changing money. Yeah. If we can change money, it's going to change nation states, humanity, society, yeah. demographics, yeah. everything. Yeah. No, this that's a great way to look at it too is I've used the analogy of money being the base layer operating system. So if you swap out, you know, the kernel of your computer or whatever, it changes everything above it. And that's what's happening, right? We're swapping out money and then all of these other applications and protocols that we're accustomed to, like nation states, institutions, they're all um, being revisited, I guess, in terms of how they're structured. And people are braver because they can see in a distributed network, they can change things yeah. that they couldn't change in a democratic-based society. It's That's fascinating, right? Yeah, so, so even more democratic. We're operating as a hive mind. Yeah, more democratic than democracy. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Absolutely correct. Wow. And that's the rise of DAOs as business models. They're yeah. more demographic, uh, democratic than democracy itself. Yeah. Because there is no leader. Right. Now, does that work in the end? I don't know. But we're going to try it because that's where the world is going. And we're going to give that whole game a look. Yeah. And humans being humans, we'll screw everything up again and we'll have to rebuild everything all over again. But, you know, that, that that's probably another 100 years' time. Yes. I'm reminded of that quote, um, humans have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. So that's why we're so damn confused. <laughs> that's dead right. And I think the most profound thing I ever heard, and I'm still finding it more profound by the every time I look at it again, is Mark Andreessen, Software is Eating the World. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That essay yeah. and just that phraseology None of us realized, right? None of us how big that statement was. Yeah. Because we're just, yeah. as we know, eating money with right. technology. And now look at what we're talking about. We're going to change everything. And that software completely changed everything. Because once you built the computational power, the software on top was the ability to use that power. Yes. Yeah. It's a brilliant point. I think. To echo what you said earlier, I think we're only, I mean, March 2020 really seemed to be the inflection point. Like we thought digital technology had changed the world a lot up until that point. But I think now is we're really at the beginning of this acceleration phase. And so if, if 2008 was the beginning of the acceleration phase for the digitization of money, mm -hmm. we need new money, right? Yeah. 2020 is like we need a new world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how big a th event I think it will be. You don't have a global pandemic of that magnitude with that much of an economic shock and it not change things for decades. Right. We just can't see it yet. Oh. Yeah, it has to change everything. It's just the effects have been too pronounced in every dimension of human life, you know?
exactly. In, in every way, whichever yeah. way it's affected you, it has accelerated everything. Raul, this has been a mind-blowing discussion. <laughs> uh, I think people are going to love this. I have so much to chew on now intellectually. Um, thanks Thank for you. I mean, that's, this is the first time I've ever actually fully laid it out. Even in Global Macro Investor, I've been writing this stuff for quite a long time, piecing it together yeah. as I'm kind of going through my own learning journey. And I've put whole swathes of it down this is the first time I've gone for the entire full framework of what's in my head. We, you know, there's a lot we could talk about in the future stuff because that's what I'm spending my time thinking because I've gone through the acceptance and given up the fight. Yeah. The fight, the fight most people are going through is it shouldn't be like, I don't want it. Right. Nobody cares what you think should or not. You can vote, right. do what you want to. Or you can try and do things that change the world. And we have these new distributed networks that allow you to do that. Very powerful. Use that, but accept where it's going. Because that path, when you put humans together in distributed networks, they're going to go that way. Yeah. <laughs> Same as AI. So right. it's all going one way. You just have to accept it and make the most of it. Yeah. Play the hand that is dealt, as we said earlier. So. Um, Thanks again for doing this. Please, if you just tell my audience where to find you, they probably know, but just in case they don't. Yeah, if they don't, look, I'm active on Twitter and I'm very approachable, at Raoul, R-A-O-U-L, G-M-I. Or the other thing is, look, um, we have a whole um, channel, which is free, about crypto. The idea is to educate people about all of these things. I talk a lot about all of this. I bring as many people on about the metaverse and all of this stuff so everybody can learn, right? It's a learning journey, as you and I have talked about. Mm -hmm. Like We don't know where it's all going. We can just make some bets and have some ideas. Mm -hmm. But that's where this is. We're really playing out on Real Vision, and it's free for everybody to just join it. Real, realvision.com forward slash crypto or realvisioncrypto.com. You pop in your email, and there's a whole world of, of knowledge journeys there. It is a fantastic resource. Um, well, you, been... you're on it all the time as well. So. <laughs> I've both been a, uh, I guess, asset and a consumer on 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 your platform, and yeah, and you've been a interviewee and an interviewer. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of learned the ropes of interviewing actually on Real Vision. That I really remember when Marty. Uh, I was interviewing Marty Benton. He got caught in a rainstorm. Yeah, I love that. that. Was one interview. of the great moments of yeah. the crypto gathering. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Raul. Well, thanks so much, man. Yeah, brilliant, my friend.